invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. For our scripture reading tonight, we're going to be reading verses 1 through 4. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we just thank you that in your providence you've brought Nick with us this evening, Father, and uh, we pray that you'll give him everything that he stands in need of this evening, give him clarity of mind and thought and speech, Father, as he brings your word to us. And Father, if we've heard these words many times or if it's the first time tonight that your spirit is moving, we pray that you will work mightily in us Open our hearts and minds to your gospel, Father, that we will not leave this place unchanged, but will be further equipped, Father, for working your kingdom. This in the name of our Savior alone we pray. Amen. Amen. Question 167 of the Westminster Larger Catechism speaks of the neglected duty of improving our baptism. The neglected duty of improving our baptism. It's interesting that that in the catechism, these these ministers refer to it as a neglected duty. From their vantage point, their churches were by and large disregarding what was a duty, not something optional for the particularly zealous Christian but something essential to the life of godliness, improving our baptism. So let me ask you, how are you doing? When was the last time that you as a baptized member of Christ's church considered the meaning of your baptism? When was the last time you relished in the gospel promises that are signified and sealed to you through it? To put it more simply, would it make any difference to your daily living if you were not baptized? Does your your baptism uh, have any implications for your everyday life? The catechism provides many ways we can improve our our baptism. And and one of those ways, these men says, is, is by drawing from the strength of Christ's death and resurrection into whom we are baptized for the mortifying of sin and the quickening of grace. The proof text that uh, these divines provide for this point is our text for this evening, Romans 6, verses 1 through 4. And and in this text, Paul teaches us 
of the sacramental significance of baptism and of our need to improve upon it if we would grow in holiness in Christ. I want to open up our text tonight with the help of three heads. First, there's a distortion. Second, a denial. And third, a description. First, notice a distortion. The apostle begins by asking a question. What shall we say then? This question draws a connection to what he has just previously written. Paul is is saying here, if what I have just written is true, what then does this lead us to conclude? The question arises from his teaching of justification by faith alone in Christ alone. In chapter 5, Paul had drawn a contrast between the two covenant heads of humanity, Adam and Christ. All of us here today are in one of these federal heads. Those in Adam, Paul says, because of his disobedience, are characterized by sin, condemnation, and death. And those in Christ, because of his obedience, are characterized by righteousness, justification, and life. Paul teaches in Romans 5 that that all men are natively born in Adam, having his sin imputed or credited to them, and thus all men are condemned before God and suffer the just penalty of that sin in eternal death. Yet, God graciously condescends and and causes some from that mass of fallen humanity to be savingly united to Christ. And these men and women in Christ are justified before God upon the grounds of Christ's righteousness. And being righteous in Christ, they reap the reward of eternal life. So, so this is what Paul is teaching prior to our passage. He, he is impressing upon his readers this grand gospel truth. That the grace of God, the grace of God through the free gift of Christ's righteousness triumphs over Adam's sin and its condemning consequences. And, and this leads Paul to address a question and and that is, why, why the need for the Mosaic law? Why was it necessary? And in verse 20, he states that God gave the Mosaic law in order to magnify the sin of man, in order to increase the trespass. For it was through the amplification of man's wickedness that God's grace would be more clearly revealed. Where sin increased, Paul says, grace abounded all the more. And it is this truth of God's superabounding grace which compels the apostle to ask, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? This question is a double-edged sword. 
by it, the apostle strikes a deadly blow to the two great distorters of the gospel, legalism and antinomianism. Let me show you this quickly. The legalist is is one who in, in some measure depends upon his own righteousness, his own works, his own doing to uh, merit right standing before God. In chapter 3 of Romans, verse 8, Paul mentions those who falsely accuse him of teaching that one ought to do good, one ought to do evil, that good may come. These legalistic objectors, they were probably Jews, and they were accusing the Apostle Paul of teaching lawlessness. They argued that if Paul's teaching of justification by faith alone was true, that it would grant men the liberty and incentive to sin as they pleased. In other words, they they understood Paul's teaching on grace to encourage sin. I remember last year attending a, a conference where I heard a powerful message of resting in Christ as our righteousness. And, and I, I left the auditorium with my heart swelling with, with gratitude unto God for, for my salvation, only to be quickly met by a frustrated older minister who remarked, is there not work involved in the Christian life? That preacher made it sound like all we are to do is rest in Jesus. This well-intentioned minister sounded strikingly similar to Paul's accusers here. So, So we have this legalistic objection that Paul is addressing with this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? But but he's also addressing the antinomian here. And the antinomian, uh, antinomianism is, is uh, from, from the Greek, it just simply means one who is against the law. He is one who in some measure denies the Christian's obligation to keep the moral law. The Apostle Peter in his second epistle speaks of false teachers who twisted Paul's writings in order to promote licentiousness. Jude refers to such men in verse 4 of his letter as ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. Such men excuse their sin and even boast in it, using the grace of God as a license for iniquity. I wonder when, when sin comes knocking, how often you've had the devilish thought come into your mind. Yes, yes, I know that that God has forbidden this in his word, but Christ is gracious. He'll forgive me nonetheless. This is the folly of antinomianism, justifying sin upon the grounds of God's free grace. 
And Paul is seeking here to address both of these issues, both the, the legalistic objection and the antinomian distortion of his gospel. And, and the reason, friends, that, that he can cut to the heart of both of them with a single question is because the root of legalism and antinomianism is identical. We, we often think of them as polar opposites, but they are both plagued with the same fundamental errors. Both legalism and antinomianism suffer from the same misunderstanding of grace as a license for sin. They both believe that if grace is what they think it is, that it will lead to a life of licentiousness. This leads the legalist to reject it. It leads the antinomian to embrace it. But they both have the same understanding of grace, a misunderstanding. Likewise, they both see the law as a meritorious means of gaining right standing before God. This leads the legalist to embrace it. This leads the antinomian to reject it. But they both have the same fundamental error, driving a wedge between law and grace. Now this leads to different ends as the legalist embraces the law and rejects grace. And the antinomian embraces grace and rejects the law. But they both miss the, the true nature and intention of both failing to reckon with the graciousness of the law and the sanctifying power of grace. Do you see that? It's important for, for us to get. James, James Henley Thornwell said that in light of this, they are, antinomianism and legalism, they are only different streams from the same fountain of pride. It's pride that leads to both of these errors. And they're simply different streams flowing from the same fount. And Paul here is addressing both of them with this question. Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He proceeds in verse 2 with a denial of this gospel distortion. By no means, he says. He cannot fathom that one who has been made a partaker of Christ would persist in his former lifestyle in Adam. You're probably saying, amen. Of course, God's free grace in the gospel is not a license for sin. But the question we need to ask tonight is, why not? Why isn't it? What, what makes the logic of this gospel distortion erroneous? I wonder how you would answer that question. Let's imagine that, that your young son or daughter comes to you and, and asks, Daddy, Mommy, if, if God's grace in Jesus is so free, then can I not live as I please? Now, this question can, can come in many forms and many ways. It can come in the form of a statement, but, but come it will. And, and when it does, what, what will you say? 
what would be your response? Maybe you will say, honey, you need to remember that, that God also gave us the Ten Commandments. Or, honey, salvation in Jesus will produce gratitude within. And that gratitude will promote obedience. Now, these answers are not wrong in themselves. The law does function as a rule of life for the believer. And our gratitude to God for his grace ought to impel us to obedience. These, these are great truths, but, but Paul here, Paul doesn't give either of these answers for why justified believers are not to continue in sin. And, and the reason why is because both of those answers fail to get to the heart of the matter. The fundamental reason, hear this, the fundamental reason that the Christian cannot live a life of sin, habitual sin, is because he has died to sin. Paul asks in verse 2, how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is a rhetorical question which is actually making a statement. Paul is saying, since we have died to sin, it is not possible for us to continue living in it. The verb died here refers to a past completed event which has issued the believer into a new state. Death is a strong reality, a strong reality which I suspect all of us here are painfully acquainted with. Think of a man who lost his, his wife. Death took her early, maybe unexpectedly, and every Sunday, Saturday morning, he goes and visits her grave with tears in his eyes, longing for her, longing for one more conversation, for one more I love you, for one more kiss. But the reality is that she's dead. She's dead. And that death entails that she is no longer active in this world. She is dead to the world as he knows it, no longer having any activity, communication, or enterprise in it. And Paul tells us that the Christian has died to sin, meaning he no longer operates within the realm of of sin. Sin is no longer the world in which he lives and acts. Sin is throughout this chapter, Romans 6, personified as an enslaving master who binds men and women under its corrupting power. In verse 17, the apostle states that we were once slaves of sin. Again, in verse 19, that we once presented our members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. 
But though this was once the case, it is so no longer. If you are a Christian, Paul is teaching us here that you have died to the reigning power of sin. It is no longer your master. You no longer are in its chains and have to do its bidding. This is Paul's response to the great gospel distortion. The believer being delivered from the penalty of sin in justification is likewise delivered from the power of sin in sanctification so that he cannot continue living in it. Christians are freed not only from the condemnation of sin, but also from the corruption of sin. They're freed not only from sin's guilt, but from sin's filth. And it is because the reign of sin has been broken that the Christian can no longer make a habitual practice of sin. The apostle then provides a description of this death to sin in verses 3 and 4. He begins by asking yet another question. Verse 3, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? In essence, he's asking this, aren't you aware of the significance of your baptism? He is assuming this is common knowledge. But I'm afraid that this is something that we often fail to reckon with, our baptism. Of course, water baptism is important, if for no other reason than because God commanded it. But when was the last time you thought about your baptism in relation to your sanctification? This is where Paul goes. He wants the Christians in Rome to improve upon their baptism. For him, baptism was not something that merely marked the beginning of one's belonging to Christ, but radically defined the whole of one's life in Christ. As Christians, we ought to think of ourselves as those who are baptized in Christ Jesus. That is, that is our identity. That is who we are. Paul here uses the sacramental language of water baptism to refer to the spiritual union with Christ which believers have. Baptism signifies and seals the believer's identification with Christ. It is our saving union with him by faith that has brought about our death to sin. And this saving relation to the Son is declared and set forth in the waters of baptism. And this brings us to an essential point about baptism. Contrary to the thinking of, of many in the church, your baptism is not so much about your faith in Christ, but about Christ's work for you. Baptism is not so much a human declaration of trust 
in the Savior, but a divine declaration of the salvation provided by the Savior. It does not signify faith, but it beckons to faith by signifying Christ and all of his benefits. The sacrament of baptism along with the Lord's Supper functions as a visible word, a visible word, something you see with your eyes. God, God speaks to our sight through the sacraments, declaring the believer's union and communion with Jesus Christ. This is why Paul points us here to baptism. For not only did our baptism signify our union with Christ, but more specifically, our sharing in Christ's sin-destroying death. Being in Christ, we are contemplated in and partake of the virtue of his death. To turn his rhetorical question in verse 3 into a statement, he says, we who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death. Do you recall how Jesus spoke of his own death? In Mark 10, verse 38, he questions his disciples. Are you able to drink the cup, he asks, that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Jesus refers to his death as a baptism of judgment. He knew that in his death, he would submit himself under the righteous judgment of God. Be, being baptized into God's wrath for the sake of his sinful people. As his death was his baptism, so too our sharing in his sin-defeating death is signified in our baptism. The believer has died to the lordship of sin through the death of Christ. Because of Christ's historical death to sin, the believer dies to sin and is freed from its powerful tyranny. Truly, friends, this is a marvelous mystery that we ought to ponder more often. Paul continues with this imagery in verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. Paul's logic here is, is that if we share in Christ's death, we likewise share in his burial. And by stressing the believer's burial with Christ, he emphasizes the finality of that death to sin. The laying of Christ's bloodied, lifeless corpse in the tomb was the confirmation or proof of the fact that he really died. Similarly, our death to sin's reign is complete. If you are a Christian, you are not slowly dying to sin's lordship. Rather, you have died to sin in Christ once for all, being buried with Christ. 
But it's not just that the baptism of the Christian signifies uh, a sharing in Christ's death, but, but also the Christian arises to new life by sharing in, in Christ's resurrection. If you look at verse 4 again with me, Paul says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. And, and now Paul is going to tell us the end result of this burial. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Newness of life. Christ's resurrection here is spoken as, of as a historical finished event carried out by the Father God wielded the fullness of his majesty in raising his son from the dead. And now you and I being united to this Christ partake of this resurrection to the end that we might walk in newness of life. The glorious counterpart to our sharing in the virtue of Christ's death is our sharing in the virtue of his resurrection. Just as Christ died once for all and rose victorious over the grave, so the sinner in union with him, having died to sin, rises to a new walk of life. Paul teaches this all over the place. One of my favorites is in Ephesians 2, where he speaks of believers in verse 5 as being made alive together with Christ. Think about that. Alive together with Christ. You who were dead in trespasses and sins, God in love and mercy has made you alive in Christ. And he goes on in Ephesians 2 to tell us the reason why God has recreated us in Christ. Verse 10, for good works, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, the believer cannot continue in a life of sin because he is a new man in Christ. If you are a Christian, you are no longer in sin, but you are in Christ. Sin is no longer your Lord, but Christ is. And therefore, a lawless lifestyle is not an option for you. It simply is not an option. And thus, professing Christian, if behind closed doors, you are living in a lifestyle of continual darkness and rebellion against God. Paul teaches us here that you have great reason to question your standing in Christ. Christ cannot be had for justification and then not had for sanctification. Christ cannot be divided. You cannot have him as your savior without having him as your Lord. You 
You cannot have him as your priest without having him as your king. If this be you tonight, if if your life is characterized by the lust of the flesh and the eyes and, and the pride of life, if, if you look at your life and, and see enslavement to sin, there is only one remedy for you here tonight. It's the only remedy that, that God has given, and, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Look to him the crucified, risen Messiah, and be saved from your lawless ways. Draw from him grace that you might die to sin and live on to righteousness. Now, it's important to be, be clear here. The, the believer is no longer in sin, but this does not mean that sin is no longer in the believer. Those in Christ are freed from sin's power, but not from sin's presence. Indwelling sin is a very real reality in the life of the Christian, and it will be as long as we remain in these bodies of death. Thus, don't misunderstand me to be saying that the Christian no longer struggles with sin. But as, as Paul says in verse 22 of, of chapter 6 of Romans, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. So Paul's not denying that there's a struggle with sin. He's going to go on and talk about that in chapter 7. But, but what he's saying here is that if you're in Christ, something radical has happened to your soul. You who were once enslaved to sin have been set free from sin. You now have a new master, and that manifests itself in a life of holiness and has its end in eternal life. And so... If you, my friend, can, can look at your life and see even the, the faintest evidence of the fruit of God's sanctifying work, be encouraged. Be encouraged this day and lay hold of Christ afresh as your sanctification. Draw from the virtue of his sin-dethroning death and resurrection. When sin comes knocking, remember who you are in Christ. Remember your baptism. Say, I am baptized into Christ Jesus. I am dead to sin and alive unto God in Christ Jesus. Remember who you are. Delight yourself in Christ and draw from him the grace needed to put your sin to death. For you have died to sin's corrupting power. Paul answers the legalistic objection and the antinomian distortion in this way. The believer's union with Christ in his death, 
burial, and resurrection issues in a new walk of life. And because of this, no one united to Christ can continue in a habitual lifestyle of sin. Rather than giving the believer a license for sin, God's free grace delivers man through Christ from the powerful tyranny of sin, enabling him to walk in holiness before God. Union with Christ. This is what this passage is all about. If you don't remember anything else, this is it. Union with Christ in his death and resurrection as signified in baptism is Paul's antidote to antinomianism and legalism. When we behold the waters of baptism, Christ is set before our eyes with all of his benefits. We are reminded of our union with him, a union which secures for us and imparts to us all the saving blessings that Christ has become for his people. The Christ by whom you and I are justified is the same Christ by whom we are sanctified. For the grace of God in Christ not only delivers from the contemning curse of sin, but also from its corrupting power. And thus it's impossible, friends, impossible for the Christian to partake of him as his righteousness without likewise partaking of him as his sanctification. One either has the whole Christ or he has no Christ at all. And in the baptismal waters, a whole Christ is set forth in whom is found a whole salvation for the whole man. And thus Paul would say here, continue in sin? Don't you realize you're a baptized man? Don't you realize you're a baptized woman? May God give us grace to improve upon our baptism by communing with Christ in his death and resurrection to the end that our lives might be adorned with the beauty of holiness. For without such holiness, no one will see the Lord. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in Christ, we are so thankful for the salvation that is ours in him. Truly, we have a great Savior, one who has delivered us from sin in both its penalty and its power. We thank you, Lord, for these grand gospel truths. We pray that you would open our minds to understand them afresh tonight. We pray that you would help us to reckon with who we are and what we have in Christ, that we would live unto righteousness and put to death sin by his power and strength. Father, please work in our hearts this night. You know, Lord, 
our needs for growth and holiness. You know our desire and longing for this. And we, we ask that by your spirit, you would enable us afresh tonight to draw from the virtue of Christ's death and resurrection that we might grow in holiness onto your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.